0: Good morning. My name is Tricia Seaman, and I'm going to be reading the scripture this morning from Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight to so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, he is far above any rule, ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefits of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself.
1: Amen. Thank you, Trisha, for reading to us the word of God this morning. My name is Steve Atkins. I'm the lead pastor here at Hillcrest Church. I'm delighted to be with you today, and um, I want to just do a quick shout out to those who are in our online church family. Um, Thank you for joining us in wherever you are, whether you're out of town or whether you're at home uh, in your pajamas or whether you're just uh, in any sort of situation. We just are glad to have you join us. I do want to sort of have a provoking question here to ask and online you can chat about this and in-house we'll talk about it. Um, have you ever felt desperate? Have you ever felt desperate? I looked up desperate in the dictionary. It says a hopeless sense that a situation is so bad as to be impossible to deal with. You know, you've ever had that moment where you said I just can't deal with this. I just can't. Maybe you felt desperate. Right out of college, I joined a committee of volunteers in the community I moved to. I was the youngest person on the committee, surrounded by people who were 15 to 30 years older than me, and I was really looking forward to what this committee would accomplish and what I would learn by associating with people who were older than me and well-established in their careers and their lives. And I was really proud, actually, to be honest, to have a seat at the table, with, especially at my age. I believed in our cause, and uh, I really thought things were going to go really well, and we were going to accomplish a lot. But all of a sudden, we faced some real opposition. It started when people were questioning, questioning the committee's motives. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And often it leaned towards people assuming the worst. And then it went further. There was a real concentrated group of people who began to oppose our efforts and um, so they resisted our efforts and they uh, part of that was again questioning why we were doing what we're doing and it went further into slandering reputations of people on the committee and it got really bad Uh, even some of the members of our committee were threatened individually and one by one the leaders on the committee began to quit and one particular meeting got really nasty. Accusations flew, lies were fabricated, and we all got dragged through the mud. It was hard. But I kept looking down the table at this one man. He was the chair of our committee. And he was strong and he was steady. And in my mind, looking, I looked up to him. In fact, I lived with him and his family. I, I, I roomed and boarded in their house. And uh, I really admired him. I knew he was a guy of great character and great strength. And in my mind, he was bulletproof. Nothing could ever knock him down. And so this meeting was horrible, and all sorts of things happened, and everyone got attacked, and, and I happened to be going home with him that night. We got in his truck, and we drove home, and then we got into the kitchen. And I remember saying, full of bravado, If that's the worst they can do, well, I'm pretty sure I can handle that. And I saw it in his eyes before I heard it in his voice. But he just simply said, I can't. And I'd been brave and I'd been strong because he was strong and he would never fold and he would never quit. And then he did and I fell apart. I lost all hope that uh, our efforts were going to do anything. I, I basically thought we've done all this work and our efforts have been wasted. The team I identified was basically gone and our opposition had won and I felt powerless to do anything about it. So let me ask you again, have you ever felt desperate? Have you ever felt a hopeless sense that the situation is so bad that you just can't deal with it? Well, what do you do when you're desperate? I mean, I shared in a story. Maybe you've had a more extreme story of desperation than the one I shared. Or maybe you can relate to it a little bit. Maybe it's not so much that you're complete and totally desperate, but you're struggling. There's an area in your life where it's not good. It's not as you wish it to be. Maybe um, your health isn't the way that you wish it would be, or your finances aren't quite right and it causes you stress. Maybe it's a relationship thing. Maybe it's a relationship you lost. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe there's someone who used to be a great encouragement to you, but they're not available or around or in good relationship with you anymore. Maybe your job is the the place of struggle or where you feel desperate. Maybe it's just feeling unnoticed. Maybe you've been betrayed. Maybe you're just trying to get stuff done, but you feel so inadequate, or you've experienced some major failure personally. You know, we're reading in the book of Ephesians, and the book of Ephesians has sort of a, I think it has a context of desperation. You have to read into Acts 18 to 20. That's sort of the context for the book of Ephesus. There's not a lot of reason in the book of Ephesus, given... uh, for its writing, I, well not totally, I should pull that back. It's not stated so much what the Apostle Paul is addressing in writing to them. But when you read in Acts 18 to 20, you get a little bit more of what was it like in Ephesus? Well, it was a pretty prominent city, a significant city in that part of the Middle East. It, uh, was, it was wholly identified, there was, a, there was a temple there to Artemis or in other, would say Diana in other words, but, um, and people identified themselves with this God. Now, the Roman and Greek gods were sort of like soap opera characters. You know, they were emotionally unsteady. They were totally unpredictable. They would change on a whim. In fact, they were just like people in many ways. They had some powers. They believed, people would believe that they had power, but they were just as undependable as people could be. And so when you define yourself by gods that are completely un- undependable, completely changeable, it's not a real strong foundation in your life. You know, they were proud of having this great temple there for Artemis, and uh, when Paul Uh, started to reach out in the city and many people came to trust in Jesus, there was an uproar. There was a a massive um, riot that happened and people chanting for hours on end, great is Artemis, of the Ephesians. This is who we are. But you see that these were people desperate for personal hope. They were desperate for personal value and they were desperate for personal power. In fact, there's a huge amount of people, it was a very common thing, people were, had turned to magic. So you have undependable gods, and that's, not a, that's, unshake, that's a shaky foundation. And so they turned to magic. In fact, people spent their money on buying magic books and magic items, scrolls. In fact, when, when a number of people came to trust in Jesus, they had a huge bonfire, and they said that the worth in our present day of what these things were worth, all of these books and all of these scrolls, all these magic items, they say it was like millions of dollars today. People had totally, they, they couldn't depend on the gods, so they turned towards magic. Maybe through that, I can deal with my hopelessness. Maybe through that, I can deal with, deal with my worthlessness. Maybe through that, I can deal with my powerlessness, if you wonder why people turned to magic back then and even today, it's that they feel this sen- this hopelessness, this worthlessness, this powerlessness. I, in 2008, I traveled to uh, Burkina Faso, West Africa. And uh, it's an interesting place. You know, you have um, the northern part of Africa. There's a really strong uh, Muslim presence. And then the Sub-Saharan Africa is one of the strongest uh, Christian presences in the world, and they sort of meet at a certain point, but you still have animists, and animists uh, would go to the witch doctor. So you want someone to love you, go to the witch doctor. You want your crops to flourish, go to the witch doctor. You want your rival to die, go to the witch doctor. Life is hopeless, Life life is desperate. I lack power. And that's why people turn towards magic. And so, Paul comes into this situation, and he's, he's, he's bringing the message of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And with that comes these power encounters. It's incredible, the miracles that are done in Ephesus. I mean, people are sick and, 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 and in bad shape, and, and they're even just taking, like, pieces of fabric that Paul has touched and they're taking them to sick people, and they're getting better. It's just one of these crazy things that's happening. And people are hearing, uh, people who are in spiritual darkness or they're oppressed spiritually are being set free in the name of Jesus. In fact, there's these, this group of guys called the seven sons of Sceva. Skiva, not Stephen. Skiva. And they hear about what Paul is doing, and they think, wow, this in the name of Jesus thing, is a powerful incantation. This is a powerful uh, line that I can we can use. And so when they hear of somebody, there's this one guy, and he's he's really under a dark oppression, a dark spiritual oppression. So they go, these seven guys. It's funny, just calling them the seven sons of Sceva. That must have been their identity. Hey, we're the seven sons of Sceva. Like, we're something. And they go into the situation, and they say, you... Whatever darkness is in you, come out in the name of Jesus. Again, they're just using it like a magic phrase. And the, the, the oppressed man turns on them and says, well, Jesus I know and Paul I know. But I don't know you. And beats them within an inch of their life, all seven of them. Wild stuff happens in Ephesus. Wild, wild stuff But, you know, you say, well, I've never experienced that. Or maybe you've experienced some stuff like that. I don't know what your experience is. But our experience in life is not different from the people of Ephesus. We have desperate times. We have moments where we feel hopeless. Or maybe we feel valueless or powerless and I believe that what we're reading, what was read already and what we're going to come back to again is addressing all those things. It's addressing all those things. So let me read to you Ephesians 1:15 to 16 again. Ever since I heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and love for God's people everywhere, I've not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly asking God. I'm going to pause there. So Paul spent, Paul's biggest investment in one location was in Ephesus. I mean, of anywhere he traveled, he did all these travels uh, across uh, sort of the Roman world as it was known. But the longest he stayed was in Ephesus, roughly three years. It was his biggest investment of time. It also was the biggest opposition he ever faced when the whole city was in an uproar, chanting towards their God and against what... Paul had introduced to the city. And it was the greatest impact he ever saw. They said that the word of God went out from Ephesus to all of Asia. Now, not Asia as we know it today, that goes all the way out to Japan, but we're talking about that Middle Eastern area was was identified. So from Ephesus, people were coming to Ephesus, they were hearing the gospel, they were taking it back to all sorts of different places in the region. It was a massive impact. And so Paul has left them. In fact, there's a tearful goodbye on the beach. You can read about it in chapter 20, where he leaves uh, the leaders of the church there to move on to bring the gospel to other places. And now he's writing back to them to encourage them. And this is what he says. He says, I've heard of your strong faith in the Lord. I've heard of your love for God's people everywhere. And I've not stopped thanking God for you. And I pray for you constantly, asking God. And we'll get on to what he asks in a second. Let me just talk about this. He's not stopped thanking and he's constantly asking. You know, thanking God for what he's done and asking God for things that he can do are declarations of faith. You are declaring that God has provided and that he can provide. When you pray and thank God for what he's done and ask him for what he can do, you are declaring who God is, that he's a provider. And so, I want to encourage you when, if you don't pray, or if you're just starting in pray, prayer, or, or maybe your prayers don't declare God as a provider through thanking and asking, I want to encourage you to do that. I have a son, one of my sons. Uh, he's the youngest, I'll just tell you. And I love hearing him pray, but I've had a concern about how he prays. He, he often says, Dear God, I hope we have a good day. And so I've been talking to him and say, No, 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 it's good, it's good, I love. I talk, you know, privately just take him aside and saying, You know, God loves it when you ask. God loves it when you ask. And you, you're telling God you hope you have a good day, but you know what? God is there to be asked. In fact, it honors God when we ask God for things. And I think it even honors God all the more when you ask God for great things, for significant things. Just ask you this question. If, if God answered all the prayer, all the things you asked for last week, would anything have changed? I'm guilty of this myself. I sometimes am like, oh, yeah, well, God's a provider. I believe that that's true, 100%. And yet at the same time, I find myself sometimes, I'm like, well, I'm facing a problem, I'm, I, I'm facing a difficulty, I, I, there's something that must be overcome, and I haven't even asked, I haven't even asked. When you ask God, you honor God. And when you thank God, you recognize that he was the one who provided. They're both thanking God and asking God are declarations that God is our provider, and God wants us to ask. So I've been trying to coach my son. Don't, don't say, I hope. Dear God, I hope I have a good day or we have a good day or something. But say, will you help? Dear God, will you help us have a good day? So It's an upgrade. We'll get on to praying about more things. But I encourage you to ask. Why was Paul, what was Paul constantly asking God for his friends? Well, he's asking for them to know God. Let me read it to you. Asking God, I'm constantly asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. that's what he's asking for he's asking for a miracle to happen in their lives for they to grow in their knowledge of god last week we talked about what foundation are you building your sense of self we talked about what happens when your sense of identity becomes unglued from the god who actually defines you you know knowing who god is is really 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 important if you don't know who God is, then you won't know who you are. You'll define yourself by lesser things. If you don't know God, you'll worship lesser things. And if you don't know God, you'll serve lesser things. Ephesians is very interesting. And, and I, I had this experience years ago. We, I was in a small group. This is about 20 years ago. I was in a small group, and they said, hey, let's read Ephesians together. And we started reading Ephesians and it was sort of like people were not that excited about the first three chapters. And then we got to four, five, and six, and they were like, oh, this is exciting because this is like a to-do list, or these are things I can do, or these are actionable. I love that. And it was a very, you know, uh, you know, they were a go-get-em type crowd, the small group I was with. But I kept thinking after this experience with the small group, I said, this isn't right. This isn't actually how it works. You know, your strongest activity comes out of your identity, your strongest confidence to act comes into, out of how you see yourself. And God designed you that way. He knows that about you, that you're hardwired that way. And that's why Ephesians begins with identity. Because you'll act out of your identity. All right, we see this on big scale, small scale, little scale. The one I think about is when... It just came to my mind, but in the winter, when the snow falls, there are certain guys that bought a truck just for that moment and they actually leave their house hoping to find someone in the ditch that they can pull out with their F250 or whatever and somehow that's just exciting for them you know especially if their Ford can pull a Chevy out of the ditch oh. It's like, why did you leave your warm house to go out into the cold? Because this is who I am. This is what I do. Now, that's a pretty light identifier. But we act out of our identity. And identity, there's there's an identity flow with God. First, you find out who God is. And out of that, who God is defines what he does. And what he does defines who we are, and who we are defines what we do, but it starts with who God is, and so that's why Paul is like, I I want you to have insight to know God better, because the more you know God better, the more you're going to know what he does, the more you're going to know who you are in, in relationship to God, and then what you do. So the back end of the book of Ephesians is what you do, chapters four to six is what you do. the front end is who God is and what he does. And it leans into that. That's the flow. That's the identity flow. God, who is God? That defines what he does, which defines who we are, which defines what we do. So the world would say, we'll watch your behavior and tell you who you are. But God says, I'll give you a brand new identity, and I'll lead you to change your behavior to match it. I'll lead you to become who you are. It's a powerful dynamic, and God knows this is how we are. He knows if our identity changes, our activity can change. So that's the beginning. I want you to know God. And then in verse 18, he says, I pray that your heart will be flooded with light. I think in the NIV it says, I'm reading NLT this morning mostly. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be opened. I pray that you could see so that you can understand the confident hope that he's given to those he called. The confident hope that he's given to those he called. Here's the thing you just need to know. If you know God through Jesus Christ, again, Jesus is, I say through Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the best picture that we get of who God is. We see him in his interactions with people. And in the the Gospels, you read about what he's done and how he interacts. And you go, oh, I get it. I I get it. I get it. God's like that. God's like that. I, I see Who God is. So when you know God through Jesus, you're hopeful. More than that, you have hope. More than that, it's a confident hope. Now the Bible's use of the word hope is not like our use of the word hope. Remember, I told you my son said, "I hope I have a good day." It's wishing or dreaming or wanting, but it's no guarantee. When the Bible says hope, it's totally different. It's totally different. Let me read you some verses about hope. 1 Peter 1, 3-4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Does it sound like a maybe? Does it sound like a perhaps? I hope I get that. No, it sounds like something solid. Later on in the same chapter, uh, verses 8 and 9, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, you wouldn't be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy if you felt like, well, this is sort of like the Roman gods. It's here today. It might not be here tomorrow. How about Romans 8? And we know, okay, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God's working for your good. We know that. If you love God, if, you've been, if you responded to his call, he's working for your good. If you haven't responded to him yet, well, he's drawing you to him. He's calling you to come, to be his. Later on in that chapter, it says, what then shall we say in response to these things? In, which is, includes God working for our good. If God is for us, who can be against us? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, all the things that can make you desperate? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, we know, I'm convinced, we have this. You hear this, the solidness of this? I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Does it sound like Paul is hoping these things are true? This is what confident hope, when the Bible uses the word hope to talk about what we have in Christ, this is what it sounds like. This is, this is what it means. And here's the last... Well, I'll give you one more here. I love this one. Hebrews 6.19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure. People have a lot of hopes. We hope for things for our our career, for our relationships, for our future, for our health. We have a lot of hopes. But all your other hopes are less firm and less secure than this hope. The hope God gives you, it can never perish, spoil, and fade. This one is guaranteed by God. That's what we looked at. It. And last week, we talked about uh, in, in um, chapter 1, verse 14, it says that you've been given a deposit of the Holy Spirit, which is your guarantee of the inheritance of what you'll have in God, what you're going to get, what God has promised you. This is guaranteed by God. And probably that's why Romans 5, 3, and 4 says it this way. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop Endurance and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. When I was desperate at the end of my, once the committee fell apart and all the things I'd hoped for was gone, and and I was desperate, I discovered this reality: that God was still there, and that actually He was going to use the problems and trials I went through to develop endurance in me. And endurance went on to develop some strength of character. I've got a long ways to go, but some of those things happened at that time. I grew a bit of a backbone during those times. I learned to forgive people during that time. There's things I about Jesus' teaching, especially that one, forgive your enemies, bless those who curse you, Pray for them. I never really practiced that before in my life. I never really had enemies up until that point in my life. But God used it. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. You know, when other things get shaken in your life, the things you hope for, you come to realize how valuable it is to have the hope that we have in Christ. So knowing God through Jesus gives you hope. Gives you hope. Here's the next one. Ephesians 1.18 in the in the second part says, His holy people. I want you to know. Let me back it up so we can have a, a little bit of a run at this here. Didn't really. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he's given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I've read Ephesians a number of times, and I've never noticed this. I've never noticed this. In fact, last week I was talking about your, your inheritance is guaranteed. Like it's just like four verses before this. Your inheritance is guaranteed. And this is not talking about your inheritance. This is talking about God's inheritance. God's inheritance. His inheritances are his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. You are God's rich Inheritance. If you feel worthless, grab onto this. If you, when you know God better, when you go, know God more, what Paul was praying, I pray you'll know God more. Because if you know God more through Jesus, you'll know you're valuable. You'll know you have value. Last week I said every person has value because they're made in, the, in God's image. There's intrinsic value, and you never locked eyes with a person that doesn't matter. To God. And Israel, when, they, when, when God was taking them out of Egypt and setting up them as a nation, God said to them, you'll be my special possession. You'll be my treasured possession, I think is the actual phrase. Treasured possession. So you see how God values people. And then look at the price he paid. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. For you know that it's not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. God's salvation for you is a free gift of grace, but it's not cheap, it's entirely costly. It came at an extremely high price. It didn't have a dollar figure. It had the blood of Jesus as its price tag. His death on our behalf. His taking upon himself the shame and the blame and the guilt of the world. Your sins and my sins heaped upon him so that we can have his perfect track record of obedience credited to us. He put incredible value on you by the price that he paid for you. And you are God's inheritance. You're God's inheritance. And, his, and you're not the whole of God's inheritance. His inheritance is all the people of God, all those who come to him. But, but collectively and You are a rich and glorious inheritance for God. You bring glory to God through your relationship with his son, through trusting in Jesus, through trusting in what he's done for you. You bring glory to God. You are his inheritance. There's a story. I told this story for years at at, um, youth retreats. I was a youth pastor for 15 years, and I got asked to speak at camps and youth retreats. And I told this story tons of places. And it's a story of a few hundred years ago, there was a group of um, people that really... Okay, there was an island. Let's start with that. There was an island, and it was a plantation. And the only people that went to the island or could access the island were the owners of the plantation. There were no boats that traveled to the island. And And the plantation was run by slaves. And so this was... You you couldn't just go there. And there was a group of Christians who were very serious about taking the message of Jesus to the world. And they prayed, and they said, what do we do about this island? You can't get there. The only people who ever go to the island are people who've been sold into slavery to go work there. And so in their prayer and deliberations, they finally, the light bulb went on for them, and they said, Uh Aha, we can go to the island if we become slaves. And so, they're at the waterfront, and they're about to board the boat, which will forever seal their fate as slaves on the island, never to return home to see their family or their friends again. And as they're standing there about to go on, their family is crying out and they're saying, why would you do such a thing? Why would you do such a thing? And their answer was that the lamb who was slain would receive the reward for his sufferings. See, they knew who God was. One thing the Bible tells us that, that God is. is Jesus was the Lamb. Jesus was the Lamb of God. Without blemish. Without sin. So that's who Jesus is. He's the Lamb of God. So what did he do? He was slain. He gave himself up. He sacrificed himself for us. So what does that make us? Well, we're the beneficiaries of that, first. But then As the beneficiaries of what God has done for us, we're called to be living sacrifices, like he was. And so what do we do? We, in turn, sacrifice ourselves for others. Those who've been made righteous by God's uh, death on the cross, by his sacrifice, are to give themselves for those who haven't experienced that yet. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring them to God. They knew who God was. They knew what God had done. They knew what that made them, and they knew what they needed to do. And the outcome was they placed incredible value, incredible value, God's value that was already true. They went to that island, and they placed incredible value on the life of those slaves by imitating Jesus by becoming one of them to bring them to God you might not be a slave this morning but maybe you're feeling you got those you got nagging problems in that area just mm-hmm. something you're feeling not very valuable there's the moments where you don't feel worth This is where you draw your worth. There's other sources of worth that we try to cling on, cling on to, just like I was with that committee. I was so proud. I was with these guys who were older, and they were well-established, and I was one of them, and that was I was identifying. And when that all got stripped away, guess what? I still had. I still had this and came to realize how important this is. I'm God's inheritance. I have value. You have value. You're so valuable to God. Here's the third one Knowing God through Jesus, you have power. Knowing God through Jesus, you have power. I also pray that you will understand, this is verse 19, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. I heard a story this summer, um, or actually many of us heard about Mega Sports Camp this summer. I'll tell you this story in a bit. And uh, we had over 100 kids here, and 40 of them indicated that they had made a decision to follow Jesus at the end of the camp. That was awesome. And we sent them, they all got... Get, we got Bibles for all of them, like kids' Bibles, and they all got to take those home. And, you know, sometimes you hear that and you go, well, you know, but who's tracking with them now and what's happening now? And, oh, it sort of seems like maybe they're high and dry and maybe uh, who knows what's happened, right? This week I was chatting with somebody uh, from our church here, and um, she told me this story. She's about my age, but she told me this story. She says, when I was a kid, I went to school and they were handing out Gideon Bibles. And I took it home and I read it. And I came to see that God could do stuff for real people, like me. And he said, I I also, she said, I also was in in a setting where they would sing songs about God, and one of the songs I heard was Jesus Loves Me. This, I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me. And so at home, I'd read my Bible, and I would sing to myself, Jesus Loves Me. And home was chaos and dangerous and then i said jesus i've read what you who you are and what you can do and so if you're real i need you to get me out of here And she said that week that week people came into her life to get her out of a dangerous situation Now, she's my age, and she's telling me this story. And she says, So, when I hear about kids getting a Bible, I think of all the power that's in that. The power that's in the Word of God for it to to be a child and just simply believe. James said in his letter, He said, The power, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And that's where I heard her story. I thought, the power of a righteous kid is too. So I pray that you'll understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. It says, this is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. God's... So... God's power is on display in several things. One, the resurrection, right? Jesus going around uh, Israel at the time and, you know, and, and people finding out that he is God and all that stuff. It's val- the validation of that was the resurrection. Being killed, he didn't stay dead. Death had, didn't have the power over him. He had the power over death. So he has power. The other thing in this is that he's ruling and reigning right now. He is king right now in heaven. So look to Jesus' resurrection. Look to Jesus' rule. And then it says what that power is for in our world now. It says he's far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else not only in this world, but also in the world to come. And God has put all things under, under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. For the benefit of the church. Because the church is his body. It's made full and complete by Christ. The same Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. You say, well... Okay, Jesus has power, but I don't know what power I have. This power is for the church. He has authority over all things for the church, for the church to accomplish its mission, to bring, bring the good news about Jesus to the world. So I, I was reading this and, and, and just, you know, doing preparation, and, and, and here's an aha that sort of came to, came to me as I was doing this is that As Christians, we should be fighting spiritual battles and expecting to win. When Paul walked into Ephesus, there was all sorts of spirituality there. There was all sorts of uh, stuff there. People were trusting in magic and looking to unstable gods. And there was all sorts of uh, dark uh, oppression in people's lives. Who is God enabling and empowering to break through the darkness. The church. The church. I can't make God do anything, but I can ask. And he wants me to ask. And especially when I'm asking in alignment with what his will is, what he wants to happen, we should believe and we should ask. The prayer of a righteous man or woman or boy or girl is powerful and effective. And he has all authority. Jesus has been made head over all things for the benefit of the church. So we we can be the church. So I think we should fight spiritual battles. We should enter in. We should pray against things that should not be. We should offer to pray for people. I, I, I do this lots. I, you say, Steve, you see crazy miracles all the time? No, I don't, actually. But obedience is success. And miracles are gravy. And I've seen some. And so I'm, I want to be pressing into this more, to trust in this more. There's a power of God for us. i just tell you a story. I've shared this one with, with you before, but years ago, now I'm going back, what, 25, 30 years, I was a uh, young adult, and I was going out to a little town in Hardest, Hardesty, Alberta. Anyone ever been to Hardest, Hardesty, Alberta? Okay, a few of you have. Anyhow, a little town, and um, I'm, while I was there, I stayed in the home of a pastor, and he told me a story. He grew up in Ontario, went to, I think, University of Toronto, and he got his master's degree in religious studies, and then he became uh, pastor of the uh, United Church in Hardesty, Alberta. So that's what happened. And uh, he was well-educated. He was in the biggest church in town, small town, but he was in the biggest church in town, and people would come to listen to him every week. And he was smart, and he was you know, educated and he would deliver different messages every week. And um, one night he's watching TV and it happened to be Billy Graham on TV, the Billy Graham crusade. So he's watching this and Billy Graham at the end invites people to give their lives to Jesus and talks about being born again and all these different things. And he's sitting there as this well-educated master's degree, studied religious studies guy. And he's suddenly going, I've never experienced that. And so he's he felt drawn in his heart to get down on his knees and surrender his life to God. Now, what happened afterwards was he'd get up to speak in his church, gathered with everyone there to listen to this wise and brilliant man. And he'd find that when he read the Bible, the words would jump off the page at him because he would suddenly be understanding things he didn't understand before. There's a theological term for this. It's called illumination. And this is what Paul has been praying for. That the eyes of your heart would be opened. Not just that you'd be smarter. Nothing wrong with that. Please Get smarter if you can get smarter. That's great. But that the eyes of your heart would be opened so that you could see, that you could understand, that you could perceive, that you could know God. You could know the hope, the confident hope he's called you to. You could know that you are valuable. You are his inheritance. You could know the power that he has for the benefit of his church to accomplish its mission. So Paul says, I love the people of Ephesus. They've they've got got a strong faith in in Christ. And they've got got this love for the believers everywhere. That's awesome. And now I'm just praying, praying, praying that they would know God better. Because if they know God better, they'll know who they are. They'll know who God has made them to be. Here's the last thing I'll say this morning. These things are all, as it says, for those who believe. These are for those who believe. I want to make that clear. You, you, I could give you a list of in Christ you have this, in Christ you have this, you in Christ. But what does that mean, in Christ? It means you're bonded to Christ. You're united with Christ. And how, do you, how does that happen? It happens by faith. It happens by trusting in what he has done for you. And so even this is a miracle. It's a miracle for you to come to that point where you realize that what Jesus did for you on the cross was absolutely necessary for you. You come to see yourself as someone who's sinned against God and needs his forgiveness. You come to understand in a greater way that, that our sin separates us from God. And the way to be united with him is for that, the guilt of that sin to be removed. Of course, Jesus, in, in, his, in his mercy, sees us in this situation, comes and takes our place on the cross so that can all happen. But when you see that as necessary, you understand you need it. And then the other thing is to know that it's enough. That it isn't just what Jesus did on the cross and then you doing a whole bunch of good stuff to match it that will, you know, together these things make you right with God. You could be right with God by trusting in Jesus. And then he'll lead you. He'll take you on a journey of transforming you. But it's not that, it's, it, it's what he did that we're trusting in. Not our own righteous actions. These things are for those who believe. That's why the pastor in Hardesty couldn't see what was in the Scripture that he saw later. It's when he believed. It's when he put his trust in Jesus instead of his trust in his own intellect and his own uh, achievements and his own understanding. These are for those that believe, not for those who achieve. You've got to trust in God. You've got to put your faith in him. You've got to trust in what he has done. Would you stand with me? So just try to be as clear as I can. If you know God better, you'll know the hope he has for you. You'll know the value you have as being part of his inheritance, the one he died for to have. And you can know his power in your life if you believe. If you believe, if you trust in what he's done. It's like you throw the whole weight of your life on him. You say, you're not just adding God or adding Jesus to the collage of identity factors. You're saying, this is going to be the bedrock. This is going to be the foundation. I'm giving my life to God. I mean, just, I'm going to lead you in a prayer of commitment. I invite you all to say it with me. Maybe you've never committed your life to God. Maybe you're like that pastor that got down on his knees and recognized there was something missing. Sort of knew th- some things about God, but he didn't know God. The eyes of his heart weren't seeing God for who he was. And then that moment when he heard about Jesus, it it's like it, the light bulb went on. Well, I just want to lead you in a prayer that just could be a prayer of commitment for you. And hopefully the start of many, many prayers where you thank God and you ask God and you believe God and you look to him as the leader of your life. Let's say it together. Dear Father, thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right.